And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The casting of crowns is in addition to their posture of falling down before God, uh, understood as an act of worship. Psalm 95, verse 6, is one passage I want to reference, and the other is 1 Chronicles 29. So Psalm, uh, Psalm 95, 6. Who would like to read that for us? Yep, that's fine. Good. So what's the posture associated with worship there? Kneeling. First Chronicles twenty nine twenty. Who would like to read that for us? James. Oh, okay. And David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, and the assemblies bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord. Okay, good. So, um, you know, sometimes when we, at least when I was growing up, when someone was leading in prayer, they'd often say, Please bow your head. Or close your eyes. That's another one. And um, not that ancient peoples always close their eyes, but it was just something we were taught. And so it seems like really weird to pray with your eyes open. Because what you start to associate certain physical gestures with worship. So things like bowing. Uh, some people, when they pray, they, they like to kneel beside their bed because that's what they were taught when they were growing up. Uh, some people in in public worship, they, they, they want to raise their hands because they want to elevate God which actually is very New Testament because you you essentially won't find any uh, paintings like um, frescoes or murals or mosaics of early Christians in worship without their hands in the air. They're all like that because that was their gesture for worship. Now we sort of make it a denominational thing, but actually it's not. Um, so the idea of raised hands. But other times, you know, pulling, pulling your hands... Uh, Pulling your hands in or keeping them down seems more reverent. So the point is, is body language and gesture does have a lot to do with worship. And that's found in the scriptures. It's found in the, the language of, uh, of the, uh, the, the elders here as they also continue to worship God. The casting of crowns at the uh, feet of God is also significant. The Jews refused to cast crowns at the righteous Jews, uh, refused to cast crowns at the feet of the emperor when asked, even though that was standard fare, because they understood that was paying homage to one, sort of elevating him to perhaps even to the level of deity. But the casting of crowns was typical of people paying homage to a ruler. So later, Josephus, an early church historian, you may have heard of Josephus, 
uh, sorry, I shouldn't say he's a church historian. He's a Jew, but he, he records history in such a way that it's very beneficial to the church. I think Christians actually study Josephus more than Jews do. But Josephus talked about early Jewish embassies uh, giving crowns to Roman rulers or Roman, uh, not necessarily the Roman emperor, but Roman leaders, political leaders. So it seems that give, the giving of crowns or casting of crowns at the feet of someone was a symbol of uh, their elevation over you. So if you had a crown that meant maybe you had some power, some prestige, some royalty in you, but by giving it away, you're now saying, oh, this person is even greater. So that's even a greater image than giving your money or your life. You're giving a symbol of royalty that's been bestowed upon you to another being and elevating him to the king of kings. Not just a king, but he's the king of kings because in a sense you're playing the role of the king by giving your crown to the king of kings. So really interesting language there. God is worshipped by the heavenly beings, all of them. So there's, there's no being that sort of is out of the mix. So there's no parallel to God. When I was a kid, I think I had the notion that Satan was equal to God, but he was just kind of the opposite on every point. And even that I discovered later is actually quite wrong. That Satan is not the opposite, the polar opposite of God. He's like way, way, way down here. He doesn't stand for any of the values and virtues of, of God. But he's not the, the arch nemesis, the, you know, the dark side of God. He is a subservient being, and so are all other beings. God is elevated above and beyond all others. All creatures in heaven and earth bow to him. Nobody's standing off the side, well, I'm kind of his equal. You know, we've been buds for a long time, so you know, I get out. No, they all worship God, all of them. We're also told that he's creator, and this is a theme that comes up time and time again in Scripture, but... Uh, the the Bible says that God created the world out of nothing. And the biblical narrative is that God created everything. And people say, well, that's just a narrative. That's just a story. But as you start to read uh, the texts of Scripture that talk about God as creator, it emphasizes the fact that no, actually God did create everything. He didn't just sit back and passively allow it to happen. He created everything. He was actively involved in it. Very specific language, and by your will, they existed and were created. Very specific language there, helping us to understand God as creator. So the 24 elders then acknowledge the worthiness of God to receive three things, glory, honor, and power. Now, we've heard these words for so long, we just kind of take them as a set. But if you kind of break them down a little bit, glory, honor, power, I wonder how those would have been understood by original, the original listeners. Well, these very words, at least some of these words, perhaps all of these words, were the very words that were ascribed to Roman deities and sometimes even to the Roman emperor himself. So the deities that the Romans would have worshipped, you would ascribe words like glory, honor, power. And if you read the, if you watch the movie The Gladiator, it's a good movie, eh? Jen likes it. It's really all about getting glory, honor, and power in the ring, right? Those words are actually are in the film. Glory, honor, power. It's very Roman. It's actually quite accurate in that respect. 
Everyone's looking for glory, honor, and power because that's connected to deity. So when the elders into a Roman context attribute glory and honor and power to God, I'm wondering if it's not a bit of an apologetic, kind of pushing back at the Roman deities who apparently are worthy of glory, honor, and power, and basically saying, no, you're not. God alone is. So not only is it informing our theology, but perhaps it's also defending our theology of God by pushing against the common notions of what characterize Roman gods. Just kind of something for you to think about. Okay, let's get into chapter 5. Chapter 5 deals with a scroll and introduces us to a lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. In, uh, in ancient times, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be that vague. During the time that this would have been written, there were two primary, um, what would be the word? Um, materials that you would use to write on. One was uh, parchment. Now, parchment today, I think, am I, am I correct in saying when we think of parchment, we basically think of fancy paper? Is that kind of how parchment's used? Well, is that true? The girls are laughing. Sorry? Oh, it's for baking. Okay. <laughs> Okay, parchment paper. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. So it's like parchment paper. And um, and then there was papyrus. Yeah, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen eating. This is like, I can't even read this. This is horrible. This board needs to be cleaned off. Anyway, papyrus. If you can't see in the back, P-A-P-Y-R-U-S. Parchment. So these would be the two writing surfaces now, the difference between the two is this is basically uh, leather. So you'd take the hide of a sheep or goat and you'd scrape off the fur. And it's very supple. And uh, you can write not just on one side, but you can write on both sides. And this would have been more money because, you know, a sheep's more expensive than reeds. Now, papyrus came out of Egypt. So basically think of it as bulrushes or reeds that are growing up. Uh, along the Nile, and they're they're probably about a centimeter thick and and flat and long. So they would take them and they would basically interweave them, right, and then smooth them out. And you would you would uh, normally want to write across the vertical uh, grid work because then your your pen could mark it up. Then turning it the other way, and you're kind of jumping over ridges every time, right? So papyrus was really popular as well, but it was less money. And you can only write on one side because of its condition. A lot of our manuscripts come to us in the form of papyrus, or the plural is papyri, and some of them come to us in the form of parchment, which was later called vellum by medieval scholars. Basically, everything went to parchment after a while. Now, the reason why I mention this idea of two surfaces, one of which is much more expensive and only one of which you can write on both sides is because this scroll, it specifically said, 
says, is a scroll written within and on the back. And the reason why that detail is given to the reader is because it's meant to highlight the precious nature, the value of this particular scroll. And not only that, but it was sealed with seven seals, seven wax seals, presumably, down the length of this scroll. So the way this would work is instead of just dropping like hot wax on it, burning the thing or wrecking the surface, they would typically wrap it in some sort of a cover and they would tie, let's say, seven strings. And where those strings come together is where your seven seals would be down the length of the scroll. And that's how it would be delivered. So the seven scrolls then are important because they indicate that it can only be opened by an authorized source. Not only does the context indicate that, but the culture indicates that. Because, for instance, Roman law required that wills, I'm not sure if this would be the case with everybody, but certainly the will of Augustus and the will of Vespian were sealed with seven seals. And only authorized an authorized person could crack that scroll open. So the whole imagery of this, the seals, the fact that it's written on both sides, says this is something precious. This is something special. This is something valuable. And then as John sees this scroll in the right hand, which would have been considered what? The strong arm, right? The tough arm. He sees a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, this is not like a, I don't think the angel's cry is meant to be taken as, oh, who's out there? Who can come and open it? It's, he's saying it in a rhetorical way. Like, who's worthy to uh, open the scroll and break its seals? He knows that there's only one. But John hears it, perhaps not so much as a rhetorical question, as, are you kidding me? Like, there's, nobody can open this. And so John is so overwhelmed, it says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Now, when you see that kind of specificity in the text, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth, I mean, there's really nobody there, but it's not just nobody can open it. He, he adds words to stress in a very specific way, literally no one, no one can open this, who's able to open the scroll or look into it. Well, he begins to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So there's literally no earthly creature or heavenly creature that's worthy to open the scrolls. So the 24 elders can't open it. The four living creatures can't open it. Myriads of angels that are in heaven can't open it. So John cries because he's upset that its contents, which are special, might remain hidden. Now into this emotional moment, one of the elders says to him, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the angelic messenger then announces that a being is, is, is available to open this, is worthy to open this scroll. And he describes him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David as one who has conquered. So I want to look at this language and understand the significance of the terminology. So lion of the tribe of Judah. We need to go all the way back to the first book of our Bible. Genesis chapter 49. 
Now, it was commonplace for fathers to issue words of blessing to their sons on their deathbeds. And it's I've often thought, like in our culture, this almost sounds a little bit like hocus pocus. Like, how can I bless my sons by saying, you will be and your offspring will be a great nation? How do I know, right? But through through eyes of faith, with the help of God, evidently the words that Jacob issued to his sons were true. And tell us something, they're part of God's prophetic revelation. So Genesis 49, verse 9, Jacob is blessing his sons, and he comes to Judah in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped and crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, have you ever thought, if that was just a human blessing, Judah, Judah would not have been the son to get it. Why, why is Judah, from a human perspective, not a good candidate for Jacob to say, basically, you're going to be the head honcho from here forward, the ruler of your people? There's like two or three reasons why this should not be happening. What are they? Okay, he was sinful. He was, he was a screw-up a lot. He didn't exactly like shine as a guy that stood for righteousness, but there's there's a number of other reasons, cultural and spiritual. He wasn't the oldest. So he he didn't get this blessing by virtue of being the oldest. Why else? He disobeyed his father sometimes. He was a hothead. His father was concerned when him and his brother wiped out Shechem that they were going to bring down the holy vengeance of all their neighbors on them. He conceived the child through what he thought was uh, uh, a a prostitute, which later turned out to be his daughter-in-law with whom he actually owed a child based upon the cultures of the kinsman, the the custom of the kinsman redeemer. Judah's, Judah's not, he doesn't, he doesn't stand out. Like he's a significant brother. He's one of the older ones, but he shouldn't get this kind of blessing. He perturbed his father and he bothered his father, but everything that he gets in form of blessing is is positive. Now, from what tribe does Jesus descend? Judah. So the Messiah comes from the Lion of Judah, who's not the oldest brother. And throughout the rest of Scripture, then, the, New, the Old Testament writers pick up on this theme and understand that the Messiah is going to come from the Lion of Judah. That's why what famous king came from the Lion of Judah? David. So if you look back at the biblical text, you have the root of David. Now, Paul understood that. If you go to Romans fifteen twelve, <clears throat> So he's in this circumstance, he's talking about 
Christ. So back to verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that God might go, that the Gentiles might glorify God. And then you go down to verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the nations hope. So they're tying uh, this language of root to David, to, to Jesse, and by extension back to this blessing that Judah, or uh, Jacob rather, gave to his son Judah centuries, millennia earlier. So the New Testament and Old Testament writers understood that whoever the Messiah was going to be, that he would come from the, the lion or the tribe of Judah, who was described by his father thousands of years earlier as like a lion's cub. And through the root of David. So this is, this is clearly messianic language. This would have been understood as messianic language by the Essenes. It would have been understood by the Orthodox Jews. It would have been understood by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. They all would have understood this is messianic language. So whoever this being is that is about to open the seal, that's the Messiah. Everybody understands that. That's the Messiah. And while it doesn't say it in plain language, it says it using language that they would have understood. So we have the, the, the lion mentioned. And then in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, suddenly he sees the lamb standing. Now, it almost seems as if he didn't notice him there before, or maybe he was there, but for whatever reason he was concealed. But now he notices between the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb is standing. Now, lamb language. Well, um, we could go to Isaiah 53. We could cross our that to the Gospels, and, and then we could explore again the whole sacrificial system and the significance of a lamb, and conclude what? The lamb clearly is a reference to Jesus Christ, who is ascribed messianic language. And here, he's a lamb, but he's not the lamb being led to the slaughter. He's the victorious lamb. He is the conquering lamb. So here is the lamb, and Though it had been as though it had been slain, so I'm not sure exactly what that uh, would have looked like, but perhaps the. Do you remember post resurrection? He still showed the the holes in his hands, his feet, spear mark in his side. It could be that that somehow John was still able to see the physical marks on the lamb. But then there's some really strange language with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, now this is one of the easiest examples that we could give of how apocalyptic literature works. For this reason, we all know without question that Christ did not have seven horns. We know that. Like there's some language where you might say, okay, it's describing an angel with, let's say, seven horns. Well, I don't know. Maybe they do have seven horns. But we know what Christ looked like. He looked like a human. He was born of a human, and he looked like a human. And no one ever said, hey, look at the guy with seven horns. So here we have clearly apocalyptic language being ascribed to Christ. It's not meant to literally mean that the Christ has seven horns and somehow grew seven eyes once she was ascended. 
just like there's not seven Holy Spirits. But the 777 language comes up time and time again to symbolize perfection, just like the number 12 often symbolizes perfection in apocalyptic literature. So we have Christ being described as having horns, multiple eyes, and seven spirits. So then we must ask ourselves, well, we know it's not literal, but what's the purpose of it? What do the seven horns symbolize? What do the seven eyes symbolize? What We've already discussed the seven spirits. That's the Holy Spirit. But let's talk about the horns. So let's just do some guesswork, first of all. What, what do you think the horns might symbolize on Christ? Anointing, power, power round tablers, what do you think? Knights of the round table. Seven continents of the earth. Sorry? Seven continents of the earth. The seven continents of the earth. Wow, that's an interesting one. What else? Cycle back through maybe passages you've read. If you if you picture an animal with a horn. Scary or not scary? scary? Mature or not mature? You know, you want to be, uh, you want to sort of be a matador, right, to deal with an animal like that. So, if we go to Psalm Psalms uh, seventy-five, Psalm seventy-five, and verse ten, we have a little bit of information here that helps us to clear up this image. Psalm 75, 10, the last verse. And just read that and then tell me what you think. Okay, good. Did you guys hear that at the back? So horns in an animal symbolizes power. So then it says here, all the horns of the wicked will be cut off. What is God saying to the wicked? You're going to lose your power or your authority. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. You're going to keep your power and your authority. So chances are the seven horns described on Christ are metaphorical for his power. And what? how much power does he have? Perfect power. Because seven is perfection. So he's perfect in his power. He's without limits in his power. How about the eyes? What do what eyes, I mean, they help us to see, right? And, well, it could be, it could be judgment. Well, one, of the, one, of the impl- one of the consequences of his all-seeing eye could be judgment. But eyes see things. And the fact that he has seven eyes probably symbolizes the fact that he's all-seeing all-knowing, and he's perfect in what he sees. So what, what this language is doing is it's elevating the Messiah as someone who is you know, more than special. It's, it's ascribing to him uh, divine attributes. This is one of the things that I, I always struggle with when I'm talking with those that deny the deity of Christ. I always wonder, I know, I know, I know, I know they're looking for like their proof text, their silver bullet, where it says, Hey, by the way, John, Jesus is God, duh. And they don't find it. So like, well, clearly he isn't. But if Jesus isn't God, 
and you're studying the scriptures, man, there's, there's a lot of God language ascribed to Jesus. Time, like I'm, t- I'm not talking about twice or 10 times or 15 times, like over and over and over and over again. A lot of language that's given to Christ, if we were to give it to me or to you, we'd say that's blasphemy. You can't, you can't say that about that person. We would automatically say, draw the conclusion that you're ascribing divine attributes to that person. That's blasphemous. But they're all ascribed to Jesus. But because there's no verse that says, hey, by the way, John, Jesus is God, duh. Then they, they want to deny the fact that Jesus is God. Right? So this is very, very elevated language uh, ascribed to Christ. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand uh, of him who was seated on the throne. Again, the hand of power. So picture it. The lamb goes, takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they just fall down and worship. So what do they start doing to Christ? The very thing that they've already been doing to the one on the throne. Worshipping him in front of the one on the throne. Now keep in mind, they're not Jews understood you don't do that with the Roman emperor, you don't do that with Roman gods. But here we have uh, Christ being worshipped in the same way that God is worshipped. Now, moving beyond that, uh, each of them is holding a harp, and the, um, the harp, of course, is an instrument that was developed early on. So you don't have to get more than about four or five chapters into Genesis when you bump into a guy named Tubal, who invented the harp. And so the harp was a very ancient instrument. Of course, it probably looks significantly different than harps today, but it's some sort of a stringed instrument. And then throughout the uh, the Psalms and into Daniel, you have stringed instruments, various derivations of the harp. You know, So in Daniel, over and over again, they when they heard the sound of the harp, the zither, the flute, the lyre, all the people fell down. It says it again and again, right? When they heard the sound of the harp, the zither, the flute, the lyre, these are ancient instruments, and one of them was the harp. So this instrument that was historically uh, connected to worship, even worship before the advent of the nation of Israel, way back to the beginning of time, is held in the hands of these beings, and then golden bowls full of incense, and it just it clears the metaphor for us. It says, which are the prayers of the saints. So it just tells us what that means. And they are singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God that they shall reign on the earth. So again, because it's the 24 elders and the four living creatures that are saying this, and they refer to the ransomed people as them, that's why I kind of think they might be celestial beings rather than the church glorified. But I could be wrong. Because there's valid arguments either way. So the land takes the scroll. He's immediately worshipped by the celestial beings, pointing to his divinity. Each of these beings holds a harp, a symbol of worship. And uh, then we have bowls, which are described as the prayers of the saints. Now, bowls come up previous to this. So if you go back to 2 Chronicles, and we're looking again at Chronicles because it's Chronicle spends a bit of time describing the worship life of the Jews. And 
the Chronicler goes into a great deal of detail to describe this. So Second Chronicles 4. Nineteen to twenty-two. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of God, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of the presence, the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold, to burn before the inner sanctuary as described, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, the of purest gold, the snuffers, the basins, dishes for incense. There's the word. Dishes for incense, fire pans of pure gold, sockets of the temple, and so forth. By the way, a lot of the language of the temple is found in the heavenly, uh, the, the, the scenes that depict. Similar language that's found in the temple is found in language used to describe heaven. But here we have dishes for incense. Same thing. Dishes, bowls, same thing. So incense then is in the bowls, and the interpreter tells us that this refers to the... Um, uh, to prayer, and another text that would indicate that would be uh, Psalm 141. Psalm 141, verse 2. Prayers are equated with incense. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So why um, why incense? Why incense in prayer? What do you? Th- it's clear that that's what they're referring to, but what's the connection? Do you think? Okay, it's it's a fragrant offering. Excellent. It smells good. It indicates you know God likes to hear your prayers. It's also sort of a, it's like intangible, and sometimes we struggle with prayer because it's it's not tangible. It's easy to go, do something, hand out a Bible or participate in some sort of a ministry but sometimes people struggle with prayer because it's it's not tangible but it's still beautiful just like i mean incense isn't once it's burned it's not tangible it's not like you can you know grab handfuls of the smoke and put it in your pockets but it's it's still good we we like that so that's probably the um the connection there so they're worshiping they're presenting incense and it says it says in the text that they're singing a new song. This is, this is why we need to introduce new songs in our worship on a regular basis. This is our, our proof text here. Now, in reality, a new song appears three times. Uh, chapter 5, verse 9. A couple more occasions in Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. And let's just look at the context of these. So in 14.3, the worshipers are the 144,000, which we haven't gotten to interpreting. Interpret. Uh, we, we haven't got so far as to interpret yet, but they're, well, we'll just say for the time being they're believers, they're worshipers. And they were singing, verse 3, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144 who had been redeemed from the earth. And then chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant uh, of the king. Um, 
And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying... Okay, evidently we don't have the specific language of a new song there. I thought there was. Unless I'm just missing it. But regardless, we have it coming up at least one other time in the uh, book of Revelation. And it refers to an event whereby some group of people are issuing some decree or words of glory to God that are special and unique. And they're described as new. You could say fresh or pointed. And the fact that the individuals that are described in this text are from all people groups. Notice this. You ransom people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Sounds a lot like the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go into the world, preach the gospel to everybody. Couple couple things about that. First of all, that was a fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah had given around seven centuries earlier. So Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You shall go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, which, by the way, were not all Jews. There are various seafaring peoples along the coasts, so referring to Gentiles. So his praise is going to go out from the end of the earth to various people groups. Let the deserts and cities lift up their voice. And then it kind of goes on to talk about all different groups that are going to be worshiping God. And it fulfills Jesus' vision, too, that the gospel would go out into the world. And so here we have the um, inclusivity of the gospel being referenced. Now, the reason why this is important is because for Jews who had lived for centuries thinking they were basically the sole recipients of God's blessing, this was like radical. They were very, as we say, xenophobic, frankly, somewhat racist. And the idea that you know other people groups would one day worship the Messiah, the, the Lion of Judah, the, the Root of David, I, I thought that was all for us. This is, this is radical stuff. And so many Jews resisted that during Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry, but the heavenly vision is that, uh, lo and behold, it, it came to pass, that people from all nations and language groups and tribes will one day worship the Lord in heaven. This is another reason why I think this is a futuristic text. Because if the text was rooted in the events just immediately after John, the near future... Well, clearly, people from all tribes and nations weren't worshiping Christ yet. North American Indians, I can guarantee you, weren't. The South American indigenous peoples weren't. The gospel hadn't jumped the Atlantic yet. So that's why I also think this is more futuristic and that the gospel is continuing to spread. And there are, still, there are actually still uh, people from different tribes that have not yet been reached in distant places like uh, Papua New Guinea. But um, the gospel is much more global in our lifetimes than it's ever been before. And that should be encouraging. So when we're all down in the church, you know, the church has fallen apart. Now, we're usually thinking about the demise of the Western church. But globally, the church is growing. That's a fact. And more and more people are, are coming to Christ. And by the way, just as an aside, it is interesting when you track the... Um, the movement of the gospel, 
that it's moving in a circular fashion back to Palestine. So when the gospel went out, it went out into northern Africa, but really didn't go too much further. It went to the east into like India, but predominantly it went into Europe. And Europe became the, the heartland of Christianity for centuries. Then it came across the Atlantic into North America, and especially, you know, the last number of centuries, the North American church really has, has carried the flag, but now it's releasing the flag, and the South American church is growing in power, and then it's going back across into Africa. And they say that many of the, if Christ doesn't return, that many of the future great leaders of the church will come from Africa, not from North America. So I don't know what to make of that, but it is interesting that in a cyclical way, it's circling the globe, so to speak, and it is spreading. And different continents under different eras have had an opportunity to sort of carry the baton on behalf of the rest of the church. So when the when the European church has, has been weakened by liberalism, the, the North American church stepped it up. Now that the Western church is being weakened by materialism, the, the Latin church is stepping it up, and the African church is up and coming. So it's just kind of, it's an anecdotal comment, but it's interesting to see the spread of the, uh, the gospel around the world. So verse 10 then is uh, interesting as well, because it says, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This, is a, this gives rise to millennial questions. What does it mean that we're going to reign on earth? So millennialists would say, that there will be a literal thousand-year millennium. That's referenced in Revelation chapter 20. And that is going to be a period of time where God is going to fulfill his tangible blessings, which in a sense have been put on hold to the nation of Israel in particular and to the church. And there's literally going to be like the lamb lying down with the uh, the lion and peace on earth. And there's going to be a, a period of millennial peace. Some take it literally as a thousand years, some a little, little more, a little less where all of the promises of God that relate to this world are going to come to pass before the final culmination of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Others will suggest that the reign of Christ on earth refers to an extended period of time from Christ till whenever Christ comes back, obviously spanning more than a thousand years because we're already a couple thousand years in, and that it's meant to be more of a reference to a spiritual kingdom alone. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we continue, but there's three options, I guess you could say, and that is, uh, how is it we're going to reign on earth? Is that like a now response? Is that a progressive response or is that a future response? Well, I'm not asking you to answer it, but it's something to think about. We know what Jack's perspective is. He's a progressive dispensationalist. Okay, very good. So we're going to end there uh, because of time, and uh, we'll pick up the tail end of chapter 5 next uh, two weeks from now, and then get into chapter six the week after so again for those of you that may have come a little late there's no class next week the elders are on retreat but we'll see you here the week after that if you haven't read the book of revelation yet please do